Raising real men is the topic we're going to address this week's program in this global class that has been going on for many, many years, long before technology existed. And now we, of course, use technology to reach so many more people. And I want to thank you for your comments, your feedback, and for the journey, which goes back so many years, literally from 1981. Would you believe it? 81, 82, when I began giving this weekly Wednesday class. It was back then, without any technology, there was no computers even. It was the beginning, the advent, we were still in the dinosaur age. And, of course, from time to time, it's good to spell out the mission of the purpose of this program, the purpose of the Meaningful Life Center in general, and all the events, programs, services, products that we, pre- we present. And that is exactly as the name implies, a meaningful life. To help us all live more meaningful, more productive lives where we fight less with the darkness and demons and speak more about actualizing the angels and the light within us. So in that spirit, and often through your encouragement or your suggestions, we speak about topics that deal not with symptoms but deal with causes, which means getting to the root of an issue. When we enter this world, we are not yet have the wherewithal nor the resources or tools to figure out how to live our healthiest lives. We are subject and vulnerable to what will happen to us. Firstly, parental influences. Forget about the genetic and the hereditary. Beyond that, the parental influences, educational influences, social influences, religious influences, or non-religious influences. All these factors take an impressionable child and like a warm ball of wax, shape it. And when we become adults, by the time we're old enough to be able to make choices, we are often a product I don't like to use the word victim, but sometimes it can feel like that, of circumstances, of what was handed to us. And we are then addressing issues on a symptomatic level. You know, you say, I have a problem. I feel depressed. I feel disempowered. I feel happy, for that matter. I want love. I can't seem to find it. I'm dealing with a very difficult situation, family or, or strangers or at work. And when, you deal with, when you're addressing an issue like that, what do you do with any of these issues? So what are we left with? Often that we've already been shaped into something. We're, not, we're no longer that young child where we can say, you know what, from scratch, let's build it the right way. As Frederick Douglass famously said, it's far, far infinitely easier, far, far easier to shape a young child than to fix a broken adult. But we are all in some ways broken adults. When I say broken, that doesn't necessarily mean in the most traumatic or dramatic way. Broken means that we have been affected by disappointments, by promises, by things that are healthy, things that are not healthy, dysfunctionality, abandonment, all kinds of forces that have shaped and defined our lives. And it's very difficult to go back to the root of an issue as long as you're dealing with the symptoms, because the symptoms are firstly the most dominant. They occupy your mind. They, have, they can consume us. Like someone will say, I'm dealing with this, this, and this demon. Don't start talking to me about bringing light in so I can be open to a relationship. And you say, maybe if you brought the light in, it would weaken the darkness and the demons. But when you're so used to dealing with immediate pain, you want a pain reliever. You want a painkiller. And that may resolve the issue shortly for sure for temporary, uh, in a temporary way, but it will not resolve it in a long-term way. So one of the focuses, if you can call it that, one of the formulas, one of the methodologies and even algorithms that we use that I was trained in and I tried to convey and train others is how do you get to the root as opposed to the symptom? 
which automatically will then deal with symptoms. That doesn't mean we don't have short-term solutions. You need that as well. What you really want to do is either repair, refine, or realign yourself to the person you are always meant to be and were born to be, but for whatever reason, those influences I mentioned have somewhat distorted or somewhat sidetracked us or somewhat hijacked us, and sometimes more than somewhat, and we become something very different. And now we're struggling to find ourselves. So in that spirit, we're going to be talking in this program about men. Obviously, this is a discussion that deserves, deservedly is also fitting for women. We've talked about that, I believe, in previous programs, but if not, we'll always talk, we can always talk about that in the future. If you're interested in that, please contact us and let us know, so we'll know there's a request, a demand, a need. But today we'll be talking about raising healthy men. So let's start with the biggest question of all. And the biggest question of all is, what is healthy masculinity? And how do we even determine that? <clears throat> what is healthy masculinity? This is a question that I would submit is one that has emerged and even plagues in many ways society today perhaps more than ever before for many different reasons, which we'll talk about. On one hand, you often hear, is it true that masculinity, the definition of masculinity is often associated with aggression, power, strength, control, the dominant sex, the dominant gender. Is that accurate? Is that healthy? If it is, we also know it has a lot of side effects and a lot of downsides. It can be abused. Is vulnerability something that identifies with masculinity? Or in, the, in the, the parlance of our times, do men, do healthy men cry? And some say a man should not cry. That's more of a woman's domain. That sounds very sexist. Perhaps today that's not used so because it's not politically correct. But there is that attitude, the type of macho, toughness. Now you can argue that historically the typical male archetype was that. Archetype or stereotype. The strong stalwart pillar, unwavering pillar that provided security and confidence to family, to, to their community, and to their social circles. But then on the other hand, we've seen the abuse of that power. We've seen the abuse of male hierarchies over history developing, who've used their brute strength to subjugate women, to subjugate the weaker people, and control them to the point of real abuse. In turn, we've seen the rise of feminism, especially in the last century and continuing, rebelling against that type of subjugation and stating one second, we have to realign, we have to review and reassess our um, balance of control and power and roles in society. In turn, you've seen men, some argue, have submitted to that approach and have, have indeed reassessed, and some have become emasculated, some have become what we'd call wimpy and weak and challenging and questioning themselves, especially in this day and age recently of the Me Too movement, where men have been exposed to behave in atrocious ways. Obviously, it's not the first time in history. So all these contribute for men starting to question their identity. Is that, is that a healthy approach to be this strong? Maybe the women have a point. 
I wouldn't say maybe, they do have a point. The question is to what extent. And then you have, as the vicious cycle continues, the counter response, where some men are trying to reclaim their masculinity. Remember in the 70s, there was the movement Iron John, Robert Bly's classic book, and, and different male-oriented groups that became about male bonding, where people would go out on weekends or retreats where they'd wear skins and they'd sweat and mountain climb and do strenuous work and grunt just to get that male expression out there instead of just being this proper and, and quieted and silenced male. So many men have felt obliterated in this process. And of course, that can also turn into an extreme where they, re- because of their anger and resentment, the male that is, they come back with a ferocity of trying to dominate again. So no wonder that we're living in a time of crisis, identity crisis, of gender identity, sexual identity, gender identity. And this isn't just for male, for female as well. Because who are we? What defines a male? What defines a female? And what defines a healthy male and a healthy female? These are all the questions. As we know, the, wise, the question of a wise person is have the answer. So without posing these questions, we can't get anywhere. We need to have a place to begin. So these questions are all meant to challenge us, every one of us, whether you're a man or a woman. But here I'm obviously focusing on men, but women have to deal with this as well. Of what, who are you? Can we create a balance? And what is the appropriate approach to all of this? As I said, deserved to have a discussion about women as well, but I want to focus this program on the male. And as parents, how do we bring up boys that will be healthy men? What should we be doing? What should we not be doing? What are the factors in society and social influences, including technology and media, that are feeding negative stereotypes, the different competitions that often men go through and having to compete, which only sometimes exacerbates the issue because they're competing for their, to demonstrate that they have strength and they have power. And that often could also come at, whether it's called bullying or other forms of subjugating others to prove themselves. And the list goes on and on. Obviously, I'm not gonna go through every factor and every experience that contributes, but I think you get the idea. So that's exactly what I'm going to address and address it from a mystical, spiritual, mystical, psychological perspective. And the best way to do this is in three steps. To firstly go back to the roots, to retrace the roots of what defines the male archetype, the healthy male archetype, before it's been influenced by culture, by religion, by people's opinions, by parents, by society. And you'll say, well, how can we ever do that? How can we isolate it? How can we separate it? Well, the sources I bring are from mystical sources, starting from the Bible itself. And I'm not here to prove anything. I'm here to present the case. Once we deal with the root, step two will be is to identify the factors that caused us to somewhat wander away from that pure, healthy archetype. If you're going in a certain direction, what caused us to veer this way or that way? What distortions came into play? And how did it affect us and impact us till this very day in the year 2019? And the third part of this is once we have, can identify those two components, 
Then comes the third part, so how do we realign? And the truth is, if you think about it, it's completely logical. Everything is that way. You bring a machine home. You buy a new computer, a new appliance, a new anything, a new car. It's fresh and new, straight from the manufacturer. Should be working perfectly. There's a guarantee. It's been checked. Okay. Then you start working. You start swearing down. You may even abuse it. You may not use the, the machine properly or the appliance or the, whatever the, we're addressing. And at some point, it could break down or parts of it start breaking down. Now, of course, we can find short-term remedies like, you know, things that just shake it up but don't really correct it. Or we find a good mechanic or the original manufacturer who knows the template of what it was meant to be, sees what went wrong, and either replaces a part to make it fresh and new, or finds a way to remedy it to make it work like fresh and new. And at some point, of course, with like any appliance and machine, they do die. The equipment or the appliance or anything can break down. The same thing is in human beings, which are also a machine. It's just more complicated machine. And there are many more factors that are unpredictable. With a machine, at the end of the day, it's man-made, it has that many components, even if it's a complex machine. You know, we just honored 50 years of the landing of the moon. You can imagine, those machines were not simple machines, but they were still machines. Maybe 400,000 people had to monitor them to make sure they're working perfectly and they landed men on the moon. Not going into the details, just as an example. But it's still something that you could say, men who created it, created the machines and created them in a way that they figured out all those details. It's quite marvelous. It's quite a marvel. When it comes to the human being, however you want to, I'm not even here to advocate a religious approach, however you want to twist and turn it, we are created a certain way. We're born a certain way. There is what's called a healthy template of the human being. And this is both on a physical level, being born with healthy limbs and organs, and eyes and ears and faculties and everything that defines a healthy people, or God forbid, I don't even want to mention it, everyone should be protected, a child born with some handicap, or something missing, or something extra. So there is a template for what a healthy human being is physically, and the same thing psychologically. A psychologically emotional balanced person. So that would be going back to the root of finding out what it is exactly the definition of a male archetype in that context, then seeing how that machine in some way has been compromised, and then seeing how can we make it a way back and realign it to a point we can be either almost as we were fresh and new, or at least as close as possible. Now this of course gets into what defines a human being. It's not just what defines a male or a female, but what defines a human being. So I'm sure that many people have different opinions. The approach I will take is based, as I said, on the biblical narrative of Adam and Eve, and as well as um, the mystical interpretations and explanations that have been passed on for thousands of years that resonate with me. I'm not suggesting it's the only approach that all of you may have, but I believe it's a legitimate approach that I feel proud and honored to be able to present. The qualifications I say is simply to be open and direct and not in any way dogmatic or imposing. So what does the, what does the Bible or the Torah say? The human being is essentially a soul and a body. That's what defines a human life. If it's only a body, it can be a corpse or it can be a lifeless entity that never was never consummated 
like we see, God forbid, someone born, a, a lifeless child born, or a child in the middle of pregnancy, losing its vitality. Again, God forbid. So when you define a human being, you're defining a body, which is clear, with all the elements of a body and all the components, and some form of energy that's energizing, which we, which we call life. It's not just the heart beating, it's not just the brain working, it's not just the lungs breathing. Those are all expressions of that, but there's a life force. You want to call it electricity, you can call it electricity. You want to call it a divine soul, you can call it that. I'm not locked in any terms, as you know. I'm talking about the concept. Now, what's more important, the soul or the body? I think most of us would agree the soul is always more important because the soul defines the personality, the inner workings, whereas the body is like the expression, would be like, what's more important, the actual physical vehicle or the driver driving the vehicle somewhere? The vehicle is necessary because that's how you function, that's how you maneuver, that's how you uh, travel in this world. But there's something within the vehicle, which is the spirit within it. It would be like saying a book, what's more important, the words or the ideas that the words convey? The words are necessary because you need to convey them in a world like ours. Ideas can't remain abstract without some form of expression. But what are words, if not hollow letters, without a spirit and content? So when you say there's the spirit of it and there's the matter, there's form and function, body and soul, matter and energy, there's so many ways to express it. Okay, so then if you talk about what is the human being, so, soul, so what, is there a distinct element of spiritual energy in a masculine energy as opposed to feminine energy? That's the presenting question. Because we can define that in this purest form. Again, I'm separating and divorcing it from the actual man or woman that you and I know, which may be ourselves. I'm divorcing it from that because I want to talk about it in the archetypal level because that way we can talk about it first theoretically and then bring it back home to where we are. Because if we bring ourselves into the picture, you're already shaped, as I said. That would not be a good template. You want to go to the template, you want to go back to the original manufacturer's um, pro, um, appliance or regular man, manufacturer's product. So, what is, so here's an interesting biblical narrative. Fascinating, actually. It says the following. God wanted to create the human being in the divine image. That's what it says. So the soul is essentially a divine image, something divine, something transcendent. We use that expression. Okay. So what does it say? It said that God took Ophermin Adam, it took earth from the ground, took a clump of earth, and shaped it into a body. So we're talking about like a piece of clay that's shaped. It has no, no spirit in it. Just think of it like a piece of clay, a sculptor. And then he says, and then he imbued it, or he breathed into it, into its nostrils, a spirit of life. And that's called neshama, the soul. Which, interestingly, in Hebrew, can also be read neshima, the breath. Breath. Because it's a divine breath. And that's why you find in so many spiritual systems the association with breath. Because breath is an expression of some of the spirit within us. Now, obviously, we breathe, and that gives us life, and that sustains us. But here, deeper than that, it's a breath from a higher place that took a piece of, of, of dead clay, of lifeless clay, and imbued it with a spirit to the point, not imbued it like you'd blow air into a balloon, where the balloon doesn't become alive, this actually made the human being a live creature. A live creature means that's not like 
every day you have to go back to the gas station to get the soul renewed. It's now become part and parcel where you can't even distinguish between the energy, the soul, the breath, the divine breath, and the body in which it resides. As we see all the time, you don't see two parts. You don't say, oh, here's my body, here's my soul, here are my arms. Where do I distinguish? Where does the body and where does the soul begin? It's completely, seamlessly fused. That's the beauty of it. God forbid, when there's illness or disease or infection, it can weaken the connection. That's why we feel an ache or a pain. And if it gets worse, we can actually feel more than that. And if it really breaks down, you can, God forbid, lose a part of a person's body, aging, and then ultimately death, because the appliance, meaning the body, was not completely aligned with the soul, and therefore they cannot continue on, just like an appliance breaks down. But the beauty is, a healthy human being, it's seamless. If someone asks you, what does health feel like? Your answer should be, it doesn't feel like anything. If you feel something, you probably need a doctor. Health is so seamless. Like if I asked you right now, what's your left leg doing? When you think about it, you realize it. When you don't think about it, it's just there. Because the life force within us is so much part of us that we don't even need to be conscious of it. Consciousness and awareness of it is already a state below the actual experience. It's like being in the zone. Okay. Now, what does the, the Bible continue with the story with Adam and Eve? It says he created this clay with the soul within it. But what is this, a male or a female? So what does the, the Bible say? Zohar, male and female, he created them. In other words, it's an androgynous creature. If you looked at that piece of clay and you looked at the soul within it, it's neither masculine alone or feminine. It's both. Either side by side or back to back. An androgynous creature, male and female. Then the, the Bible continues and tells the story how God separates them. Separates them. And there's different opinions exactly how that takes place. It's not so relevant to our discussion. And that's when they assume their names. The Adam. Why is Adam called Adam? Because Adam came from Adama. Offer in Adama, from the earth of the ground. And Chava, or Eve, is called the mother of all life. But here's the big question. Both of them, male and female, both came from the ground. They both were from this original piece of clay that came from the earth. So why is one of them called earth, the earthy one, and one is called the mother of life? A much more sublime definition. Because though they both were created from the earth, but when they were separated to becoming, identifying their roles and their personalities, as much as they have in common, there was one main, main difference between them. That one would be the more earthy one, meaning more physically stronger, more brute strength, physically stronger, way more taller usually, and other factors, and also personality-wise, which we'll soon talk about, more aggressive energy. Again, archetype we're talking about, because obviously there are women that have masculine traits and there are men that have feminine traits, even naturally, let alone that which came through uh, culture and so on that we mentioned earlier. And what happened was that now you have uh, two different entities. One is earthy, involved in sublimating the earth, meaning conquering the elements, hunting, and doing all kinds of the physical actions that allow civilization to be born. And the other is a much more refined creature called the mother of life. So though she originated also from the earth, but she now emerged from a life that was there already, and with the role of being the mother of all life. 
the one that would carry children, the one that would nurture children. Now I must qualify, this does not mean the male does not have elements of nurturing, and of course a male does not carry children physically, and a, man, and a father does not have any responsibility. Obviously that's not the case. But if you were to speak in terms of primary, primary and uh, the, the primary so-called gene, or the primary element, that would be the distinction. And you see it. You see, for example, the voice of a man compared to the voice of a woman. Generally speaking, unless we are exceptions, you say that woman has a more masculine voice. There are men that have more feminine voices. But generally speaking, as our hormones begin to develop, you see, even children, but especially as we grow into adults, the voices change, and one is a more gruffer voice, a more deeper voice, and one is a much more subtle voice. That's just one example. There's hundreds of examples including, of course, the way the human body is, develops, physiology of the man, the physiology of the woman, both in order fitting to what their roles are. And that's an important factor because if you really want to know what they're like, not by culture or by programming or by distortions or hijacking, like all the points I made earlier, look at the bodies. The, the, the bodies tell you something. That's, the body is shaped and defined fitting to what their need is. For example, so if a man decides, I want to become pregnant, and I want to carry the child, I want to be the nurturer, it doesn't work. Now, can you develop a surgery and so on that maybe try it? But why force it? Why change the machine? The machine was created for something. And on the other hand, the male provides the seed, the woman provides the womb. Together, they join together as the Torah continues, the Bible continues, and they become one flesh as they were once before they were separated, because now they each join as partners, as equal partners in the process of creating life, nurturing life, and as the Bible says, to, be, to multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and sublimate the world, the mission for which all human beings were created. And with that in context, it's very clear the male has his functions, the woman theirs. Now, of course, there's more similarities than differences, but the differences matter. The differences matter both in the physiology, in the biology, and psychology, and spirituality of each one of them. So if you can identify that archetype before it's been touched, we're not talking about what happens when man meets woman, and what happens when they're interacting with others, and what happens when a culture begins to, to identify or try to define these personalities for their own self-interest. As I mentioned before, men trying to use their power to control or dominate. Or women using their strengths in their own way for their own personal gain. If they're committed to what they were created, and they're committed to their purpose, then you have essentially two complementary parts, no different than real partners in a symphony, where each one's playing their instrument, and they both need each other because that's the way it's going to be most beautiful and the most harmonious, and the most effective because not everyone can do everything. So in that context, what is the male, I'm talking now the distinctions, not the similarities. The similarities, we can talk about that. I want to focus on the distinctions. So one of the distinctions, let's go, yes, physically stronger, a deeper voice, and also a personality that fits that, a personality that's more aggressive. Now, aggression itself sounds like a, a dangerous word, a frightening word. Yes, when it's not sublimated. But aggression is also a positive thing for protecting your young, for hunting, for, for go, be a go-getter and go, be, go out there to accomplish something. Now, this doesn't mean a woman doesn't have that drive, but her role is less 
the aggression part and more the nurturing and sublimating part. As the words of the Talmud beautifully put, the man goes out in the field, works hard, and he harvests the land, brings back grain, and the woman turns it into a beautiful challah, to a beautiful baked bread. A man goes out in the field, harvests it, brings back flax or other materials, and the woman turns it into a beautiful garment. Now, why can they reverse roles? Because to work in the sun, a hard work, give an hour for a woman to do it, a man will do it, who will probably accomplish more? has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It's simply the physical strength and the role that a man has. Now you'll say, today, technology, we don't need all this. We can just press buttons. But that doesn't still take away from however, however that applies to our times. Yes, today's a lot of things easier. We don't have to work the fields. But there's other areas where you need that strength. And when they work in harmony, none of them feel, feel um, deprived. And none of them are in, unnecessary. They're absolutely indispensable. Just like, think of a man trying to have children without a woman. I know today all kinds of things are being tried, but you need a woman at the end of the day, someone has to carry the child. As a matter of fact, they probably say that the question is whether you need men. There are books, Who Needs Men, The End of Men, because you can have the seed of the man, but a woman can't be replaced. But I'm not getting into now a, uh, a battle about that. Suffice it to say, in a normal, healthy relationship, a healthy environment, you need both. You need the seed of the man, you need the womb of the woman, the egg of the woman, you need it to be um, fertilized, and then it grows and develops, and then a good, healthy child needs parents. Can we work around it? God forbid, divorce or other things? Of course we can work around it. People are resilient. But we're talking about, as I said, the archetype of a healthy relationship from the outset. So what does this tell us now about aggression and vulnerability? It tells us that the key ingredient here is not whether you're aggressive or you're tame. The key ingredient that it's not about you, that you're here to fulfill a purpose greater than yourself. And when you have that in place, then interestingly, you suddenly can find a balance between the two. You can be aggressive, but also sensitive. You can be a go-getter and driven, but also vulnerable. You could be a giver, but also a taker. So there are many factors that actually define who we are. And, we, and when you think of it that way, it actually brings together it brings together these two strengths, which to sum up again, could be strength or aggression and sensitivity. And it could also be strength and humility. That's a key one. Confidence and humility. We live in a society where very often we think that they're a contradiction to each other. They're a contradiction because if you're strong, then you can't be humble. If you're confident and ambitious, you can't be yielding. That's not true at all. That is why when you look at men, I'm talking now men, strictly men, the best men in the world are the people that have a beautiful combination of both. They have strength when they need the strength, but they never take it to, the, to personally and selfishly to use it to hurt another. Their strength is only used in order to build something, to protect a home, to protect their families, to build in society a decent, a moral code, 
Now, this doesn't mean women can't do that, because I said today I'm not speaking about women. But of course women also have both those roles. But I'm talking about the fact that asking the questions I said earlier about masculinity. Is it about aggression and strength, though that type of unwavering pillar? Or is vulnerability legitimate for a man? And both expressions. And what, how people have been reacting. So what you have is, at the end of the day, this is the archetype. It's a beautiful combination of both and need balance of both. Now let's talk about part two, which is what happened. What happened is, what, and I'm, to get to all the reasons for it, maybe two, we need more than one evening and one program, but suffice it to say, for many, many different reasons, we grow up in a community or we grow up in a home where this is not necessarily taught properly. We come again in a home where our fathers are very dominant and very angry and even abusive, and that impacts us, and we think that may be the way. Then we have the opposite. You have fathers who are what do you call wimps, I mentioned? You call, um, um, there's another expression, which is insulting, but it's, it's true, that are, uh, uh, I forgot the word, pushovers, essentially. And, the, and the women control the home. That, too, creates an impression on a child. And then there's in-between. So when you're being impressed upon, and as I said earlier, you don't have a clean slate. You're being affected by those around you. I can't tell you how many times I hear that, especially when you start exploring a people, people's issues and lives, you go back. So what was your father like? And what was your mother like? And how do they interact? And what about your grandfather? And then you start hearing, my grandfather was mistreated my father, and my father continued the vicious cycle. Sometimes it's a different approach. Now, this doesn't mean it's always a nightmare. I'm just using those stronger examples. Sometimes it's actually a beautiful combination. But you have to be lucky in a way, because... If you're born to a family where the father and mother do have the balance, then you are have a fight. <laughs> you have a big head start, I should say. So what you have is um, influences. Then there's the influences of society. You look around in schools. You look in the media. Look in video games. Look in the, the in television and and film. And what do you see? There are stereotypes for men and women. Yes, it's changed because, as I mentioned before, women have risen up, and correctly so, to rebel against the male hierarchy dominance. But still there are stereotypes. The Me Too movement just demonstrated that men can just be men, as they like to say, which is not an excuse. And they're just sexual creatures, and they're primitive, and so on. And you've got to manipulate them. Or some say they're not even that powerful. They make believe they're powerful. And they use their, their wily nature, the men, to, to project power. However you explain it, society has labeled, and not just labeled, has projected and presented males in a certain way. And to the point, as I mentioned before, we can't even make heads or tails, which is healthy, which is not healthy, because we're born into it. That's why it's so vital to go back to what I said, step one, what are we like before all that has shaped us? And you'll be surprised. If you make now three columns, we'll get to the third one shortly. Column one, the archetype that I described. Column two is the forces that have shaped you. What was your father like? What was your mother like? What was your grandfather like? What were your uncles like? What were the males that, that, that uh, were part of your impressionable younger years? The males that influenced you. Who were your heroes? Who are your heroes today? Remember the O.J. Simpson story and others today. And some of us are shocked when we hear how some of these heroes of ours behave in such atrocious ways. 
who defined that they're heroes? They may be great sports athletes, they may be excellent at what they do, but why are they moral heroes? But that's a society in which we live. They're heralded and highlighted as being prominent because that's how the media works, that's how our world works. So we have to start challenging that if you want to become a little independent. We can't just buy into whatever is being sold to us. Now, I'm not saying there are people who are paragons, who are real examples and real heroes, but they usually don't get the spotlight. So the first step is a column, what is the archetype? Number two, what are the forces that have influenced your masculinity? And then comes number three, column number three. Once you take one and two, it's like anything. You can then say, okay, so how do I realign where I am to what it's supposed to be like? You know, when you take a lung x-ray, for example, you often see the doctor will then place a, the x-ray of your lung near on one of these screens, and near the negative, near a healthy lung. And you can actually see, here's what a healthy lung looks like, and here's what an infected lung, God forbid, looks like. The same thing with the other parts of the body. Why do you need the comparison? Because if you don't have the comparison, you can convince yourself that an infected lung is a healthy lung. Just like in art, someone who's lived their entire lives with a standard that was distorted can convince themselves this is healthy. Then you come to realize, one second, there's a certain standard for beauty in art. So the standard is vital, which is column one, the archetype, because it then can tell us, okay, one second, you know, my father's aggression, aggressive behavior was not necessarily completely healthy, or his very lame and passive behavior was not, or his aggressive passive behavior, or passive aggressive, I should say. And you have something to compare to. And sometimes, and not sometimes, I would say, have someone to talk to, a coach, a mentor, someone that can help you sort this out, because sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Also, remember, we love our parents, and sometimes that love blinds us, because it's hard for us to distinguish where was the parent healthy, where were they not healthy. And we sometimes will cover up or minimize, or sometimes the opposite, we'll exaggerate. So it's very important to get this right and say, okay, here are the masculine archetypes, the masculine traits that are archetypal in its purest form, like freshly fallen snow. And here's the influences that have affected me from everything, from the young age, through school, through the media today. Now, you may have embraced it and you think you're doing great. But a healthy person with integrity is going to make this comparison. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, if this is misaligned, what can I do to realign it? Now, on a mild level, that could simply be behavioral change. So you know what? I'm not going to behave that aggressively. Sometimes that's not easy because things that are deeply ingrained in shaping and forming our personalities aren't easy to just eliminate. Habits take hold and second nature becomes like first nature, and it's not that easy to change, even if it was nurture versus nature. So there you may need stronger intervention, and that begins with having someone to speak to who makes suggestions. They can be behavioral suggestions, they can be more introspective suggestions, but things that allow you to not just go on the merry-go-round of your life and continue, because that's what insanity is, doing the same thing and expecting different results. So column three are real suggestions. Taking one, aligning it with two, or I would say juxtaposing it with two, and then saying, how can I realign it back to one? The two to one, and those are the suggestions in column three. It's difficult to do in a program that many are listening to because it's not a generic formula. It's a generic formula to do what I'm suggesting, but it, it has to be applied and tailored to each one of you according to your particular needs. What's even more powerful, this is a great formula for parents who are, who are bringing up their children. 
Because they don't have to wait till they become adults and then they have to go realign themselves. Why not, doing the right, why not do it the right way in the first place? Teach our children. And this is boys and girls. They're roles. And roles doesn't mean locking them in. Every person within men itself, everybody's a little different. There's no such thing as one size fits all. But identifying the man's strengths, identifying where there can be abuse or extremes, identifying where the vulnerability and the humility is necessary, and combining the different factors that come together that really define the healthy male. And this is completely doable. I have seen it done. I've helped people do it. Obviously, it's not, it's not a magic trick or a magic pill. It begins with introspection. It begins with honesty and integrity and, and a wish to do so because things don't change just because you want it. And sometimes, unfortunately, people wait till things get out of hand, out of control. You hit rock bottom. No need to do that. This will make you a healthier person. You'll be the best man you can be, and you'll teach your children, educate your children to be the best men that they can be. And in our society, God knows how much we need it because of the so many confused roles. And, so, and, and due to the fact that we don't understand the, the real nature of male and female, and that's why there's so much confusion. So we need, we need this. It actually can change society. It's not a small little discussion. So I hope I did some justice to this approach, and I hope you benefit from it, and I hope I hear back feedback from it, including critique. Don't be ashamed to criticize. And I'd love to hear, above all, people trying it and telling me what you have discovered, what the results are. And don't be perturbed. It can take some time. But stick with it. The key is persistence and following these three-step guidelines. So this is part of what we do at the Meaningful Life Center, trying to probe, connect to the roots of who we are, see the distortions of what we've become, and try to realign and get back to who we are, maybe even better, because now we've also learned through hard-earned experience and sometimes trial and error and become even better than what we would have been had we never had the distortion in the first place, which is also a beautiful concept because it means it's not like, oh, what a waste. No, there are things you learn, and that teaches you to be even more sensitive and even more insightful and more wise about these matters in addition to being able to help other people align themselves and discover the true male that they could be and should be. And I have no doubt that if we applied ourselves, each of us, this would be a very different type of world. A world where war and discord and conflict, which some say is very male-oriented. If women ran the world, it wouldn't be that way. Some, don't, some argue. But however you understand it, what, uh, this type of attitude, whether it's male or female, would change dramatically things. And you say, you're going to go change the whole world? Start with your own home, your own community. Start with your own home, with your own family. Extend it to your family, to your extended family, to your community. And you'll see it has a ripple effect. Because every one of us that realigns creates another temp- a template that others can follow. They'll say, where did you not learn that from? Because the vicious, on the other hand, the vicious cycle is the other way around where dysfunctionality breeds dysfunctionality. And people just continue, oh, that's what's done. That's what I always thought it was right. And then you find that, no, it's not necessarily the right way. How many people have told me? I didn't know that it's not right to just yell and and scream. I thought that was the way you express anger. Now you say intelligent people? Yeah, because you see it, it becomes a second nature and you don't even control it. I'm not trying to be simplistic about it, but there's other things more subtle the same way. So it's vital for all of us 
to start correcting things and bring it back to the way it was meant to be. We're not talking about something new. Back to the way it was meant to be. In the words of Michelangelo, when he was asked, how do you sculpt those beautiful angels in the marble? He said, I see the angels trapped in the marble and I, sculpt, and I carved and carved and set them free. It's there, but sometimes embedded and stuck in marble and concrete and other substances that we have assumed, that we have carried, that have been projected upon us, even imposed upon us, that we have learned from others, not necessarily healthy habits. And we have to carve and carve and set that free, set the male free within you. May each of us achieve that, to free your male spirit, that it can truly soar and truly accomplish the combination of strength and humility, power, confidence, and vulnerability, and celebrate that balance and connection. So this has been Simon Jacobson speaking about raising healthy men. And uh, please stay in touch with us. Share this on all the channels and platforms that you can. Communicate with us. Please help us in every possible way by sharing the message, by helping sponsor the programs, by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsor, sponsorship, and uh, in any other way that you feel you want to contribute and be part of this hopefully life-changing mission, life-changing project to transform the world into a healthier world, a more male healthy world, a more female healthy world. Everyone, world. Everyone be well. And until next Wednesday, every Wednesday we're here at 8.30 p.m. Everything is archived. So you can find this program as well as hundreds and hundreds of others. You can download it as a podcast on your, as a, as a, uh, in iTunes and all the other um, podca- uh, platforms that exist out there. Until next week, everyone be well. Thank you.